listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Dyker. Thanks for joining me for episode 42, Tipsy Coachman. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. If you deal with appeals in Florida, you'll eventually hear about the infamous Tipsy Coachman. Who is he? Why do we celebrate him? Is this just another bizarre Florida man? Joining me in this episode is friend of the podcast, appellate specialist Jared Krukar, a senior attorney in the appellate division of the Florida Guardian Ad Litem. Jared and I will dig into this topic next. So, Jared, thanks for agreeing to help me get to the bottom of this bizarre tipsy coachman issue in Florida. Always happy to be here, Dwayne. So we should mention that this is actually the first time the podcast has been recorded in person since the pandemic started in February, you know, due to the coronavirus. And But we should say that we are socially distanced uh, on my back porch. And uh, so you might hear sounds of the, the golf course or the neighborhood or the dog, you know, it's... We, it is what it is. I don't think anybody will mind. I certainly don't. It's a beautiful day out today. Um, sun shining, 70 degrees. Sorry for any of those in Tallahassee who are still dealing with the cold today. <laughs> and since we're talking about a tipsy coachman, and since it's the weekend and we're not working or on the clock in any fashion, I figured that we should probably crack a few beers while we do this. It just it seems uh, only appropriate, right? No complaints here either. All right, well, we'll see if we can figure this out, and uh, we'll, we'll take it easy so that it's a tipsy podcast and not a, not a drunken debacle. Well, we'll at least take it easy until after we're done with this, right? <laughs> That's right. Podcast first. Thank you. Uh, finish the podcast first, and we'll finish the beer second. So I have a confession to make. Um, I've said this before, but the first time that I heard about tipsy coachman the first time i heard somebody say that i thought it was shorthand for a case i thought this was going to be tipsy versus coachman or something like that uh and then ultimately i figured it out but but do you recall how uh, you learned about tipsy coachman or when you first heard the term well, when I first started in appellate law, I was working within the walls of the Second District Court of Appeal. So, Tipsy Coachman was um, was frequently discussed. So, I think I, I knew what it was within the first day or two of, of working at the court. Um, yeah, it, it was shared with me frequently. Yeah, it's certainly something that comes up a lot there. And so, spoiler now, right? The the term Tipsy Coachman means exactly what it sounds like. It's a reference to a, a drunk coachman. Which, of course, is an archaic term for uh, uh, a coachman as a driver of a horse-drawn carriage, uh, like a driver for hire or, or a taxi driver. But the, the uninitiated could fairly ask, like, what does that have to do with appellate law? And it's an interesting history, I think. Um, so, Jared, do you know when this odd terminology was introduced to Florida jurisprudence? I think everybody will be pleased to hear that it didn't necessarily come from Florida, but came to us through Georgia which seems fitting, right? It does. And uh, it was first mentioned in Florida in a footnote in the case of Holland v. Holland. They cited a Georgia case, which many, many years prior, and I think Dwayne will talk about that a little bit, that used the tipsy coachman as an analogy for expressing why they might affirm a case even though the trial judge had gotten things wrong. 
Yeah, and so uh, it was Justice Bleckley in Georgia. He was actually the first, I guess, to, to draw this specific analogy. And he, he, he drew it from a, some lines in a, a poem uh, entitled Retaliation. It was written by Oliver Goldsmith in 1774. So this poem is a couple years older than the Declaration of Independence. I mean, the whole thing is really obscure, isn't it? Why would an appellate judge go to a poem about a tipsy coachman written 200 years prior to explain uh, this this concept that he's going to use to affirm a case? It's it's strange. I'm I'm guessing that he was some sort of frustrated English literature major. <laughs> that, that might be an explanation. <laughs> So, so this is because it's so old, 1774. Though the language even of the poem is pretty archaic, but I, I want to read the relevant language of the poem, which actually is quoted in a few of the cases uh, that that make reference to this. So, this the lines are: the pupil of impulse it forced him along, his conduct still right, with his argument wrong, still aiming at honor, yet fearing to roam. The coachman was tipsy, the chariot drove home. I feel a little bit like I'm reading it. It was the night before Christmas there, but it's... <laughs> yeah, I, I, th- I think we need a little bit more uh, more libations before we can say that comfortably. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the meaning is, is, a little bit, uh, is a little bit buried. But uh, the, So the actual first sight to this was in this Georgia case in uh, 1879. So, you know, that was a little bit closer to, to the... Uh, the time of the poem so maybe that makes some some sense possibly possibly in that case uh, the georgia supreme court what they said um and sort of the 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 birth of this concept they said uh and i'm quoting here it not infrequently happens that a judgment is affirmed upon a theory of the case which did not occur to the court that rendered it or which did occur and was expressly repudiated the human mind is so constituted that in many instances it finds the truth when wholly unable to find the way that leads to it. That's pretty deep. It's very deep, but it's, it's also it's kind of insulting, isn't it? <laughs> hey, you think about it. It's, it's, are, are we saying that the, the trial judge who somehow finds the right result but has no idea how he's gotten to it and has done everything completely wrong in the process? Like, like getting drunk and uh, passing out at the wheel of his coach. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, and I guess the the criticism is of human nature, right? Not just trial judges, but but yeah, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit insulting, I guess. So, but interestingly, that that Georgia court they did not refer to it as the tipsy coachman doctrine, but that's you know that's sort of the genesis of where this came from because of the line in the poem, right? So that concept, which, which we're just going to call today the uh, right for the wrong reason concept, I mean, although the, the, the term first appeared in 1984, and it has that roots in that older Georgia case from the 1800s, um, the doctrine or the idea uh, at least comes up a little bit earlier in Caraway v. Armour and Company from 1963 in the Florida Supreme Court. And that case, they cited the Levy-Porter case from Georgia, yeah, they also, they don't use the term tipsy coachman, but they cite to the poem. So <laughs> just an, another case where the language appears. Do, does any Georgia case um, actually use the term tipsy coachman doctrine from back then? I mean, Holland v. Holland didn't. Um, 
Right. I, I don't think so. I, I'm not sure exactly. I, I didn't do enough research to know exactly where it first appeared, but we know that it didn't appear in Florida until until much later. And I don't know. I don't know if that's something that, that uh, you know, a Florida man came up with. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It is interesting, though, that, um, you know, looking again at the history, it was um, until 1998, which was really not that long ago, the term was used exclusively in the 5th DCA in Florida. So um, that was primarily used there until 98, and then not long after that, it sort of spreads to uh, the rest of Florida. And it's first mentioned by the Florida Supreme Court in a case that we all have heard of. It's the Dade County School Board versus radio station WQBA. It's a 1999 Florida Supreme Court decision. And although I'm not sure that was really the key issue of that case, that case is cited for a lot of different things, but it's also often cited for Tipsy Coachman. Right. Uh, that, that case has you know two paragraphs in it that extensively lay out the tipsy coachman doctrine but then that's really a very minor part of the rest of that case that case has so many different um applications i i would venture to guess that every person listening to this podcast has cited that case many times yeah i know that i i I cite to it a lot and it's just it's sort of shorthand for for that concept right it's just shorthand for the tipsy coachman doctrine even though it's not necessarily the the most um it wasn't the pressing issue in that case. Right. And the court cites to it a lot, too. Mm-hmm. So it's been cited a lot since then, though. So we have the 50 CA. So all you 50 CA practitioners, be proud of, of setting this out and uh, starting the ball rolling in Florida. But um, once WQBA came out, it's, there's a lot of citations to Tipsy Coachman since then, right? Right. So I, I did some digging in Westlaw just to kind of get an idea of the, of the numbers because I think that that kind of helps – us understand how how broadly this concept is used. So the phrase "tipsy coachman" has appeared as of yesterday because it, it, it keeps going up. But as of yesterday, three hundred ninety three times in Florida appellate courts, uh, seventeen times in the Florida Supreme Court. Uh, the last time it was used was was just a couple weeks old. So it, the the term appears in Florida cases at least once a month, from what I can tell, and sometimes two or three times a month. Wow. That's a lot. It is. It's, it's got to be one of the most commonly cited doctrines. So it's interesting. Tipsy Coachman is it's primarily used in Florida, uh, but it has been mentioned in other states. Um, I found mentions in Oregon, Virginia, Alabama, and Georgia, but nowhere near uh, the volume and frequency that the term comes up in Florida. So we've successfully wrested it away from Georgia and can really claim ownership to it now. We have. We've, we've uh, transplanted it uh, South. That's fitting for Florida. That's right. Everybody moves to Florida to retire. (laughs) (laughs) Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at 877-810-5525, and their contact information is always in the show notes. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. CSBA is a national agency that sits with court bonds all over the United States, but has extensive experience in Florida. I suggest you take a moment, visit their website, courtsurety.com. It's full of valuable resources, including a state-by-state guide to appeal bond requirements and a comprehensive FAQ on collateral, underwriting, and the application process. 
The next time a client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. Well, so let's talk a little bit about what the rule means. Um, Jared, if somebody asks you, how do you explain the tipsy coachman rule? Well, the, 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 the plain language, easy, quick answer I would give people is that um, the appellate court will affirm if the trial court got to the right results, even though the trial court may have used the wrong reasons. Now, you can expand on that, too, and, and many courts have. There's a good case out of the Florida Supreme Court, uh, Robertson v. State, from 2002, that kind of sets everything out, um, in addition to the WQBA case we talked about earlier. And it said, we start with the proposition that, generally, if a claim is not raised in the trial court, it will not be considered on appeal. However, notwithstanding this principle, in some circumstances, even though a trial court's ruling is based on improper reasoning, the ruling will be upheld if there is any theory or principle of law, uh, or any principle of law in the record which would support the ruling. Um, and, and that pretty much covers the, the standard version of Tipsy Coachman. Beyond that, we start getting into, well, does it apply here and does it apply there? Uh, does it apply to summary judgment? Does it apply to other issues? And that's where you kind of have to start digging a little bit deeper um, and, and figuring out if it applies to your own case. Yeah, and I think that this makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, the, the concept is not unique to Florida law, even if the term tipsy coachman is, is mostly ours. The, the concept is well-developed in Florida and elsewhere that an affirmance can be based on essentially anything that's in the record. And it's a part of this larger overall philosophy of appellate courts that the burden to show error is on the appellant. Uh, and ties go to the appellee. So appellants have the obligation to raise the error to the trial judge to preserve it so they can bring it up on appeal. But appellees have a lot more freedom. Uh, That's one of the great things about representing an appellee is you can make any argument that fits with the record. Uh, One of many great things about being an appellee. But, you know, there's a lot of other doctrines that potentially conflict, too. And one of those that I've always wondered about is, um, is the application of the Applegate principles, where it's the appellant's burden to bring forth a record sufficient to overturn something. What if the record is, what if the appellant has brought forth a record that looks like it demonstrates error, and then the appellee says there's something else in the file in the trial court that hasn't been filed that would undermine the appellant's um, undermine the appellant's argument under Tipsy Coachman. It would show that they're wrong, but it's not the appellee's burden to um, supplement the record or make sure that the record is is complete. So, is the argument at that point the appellant hasn't brought forth a sufficient record because they haven't demonstrated that there's nothing in the trial court that could support the ruling? Or is the or do you as the appellee do you ignore Applegate and say, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna supplement the record anyway, mm. and that may be a little deep for the the halfway through the podcast discussion, <laughs> but it's something I've uh, uh, I've been thinking of for a while. Um, also, with the whole harmless error cha- standard change from harm- from a special v, sorry, it's not it used to be special v bow, and then the Supreme Court took it up as uh, what is it West Boca Medical Center versus special 
it's it's the other harmless error case that everybody knows, but it's not on the tip of my tongue. Right. <laughs> so all these doctrines are interweaved or interwoven, and and um, Tipsy Coachman is just one of many of them. And there's lots of arguments we made all the way around. But I have taken us way off the uh, off the beaten path that the horses are supposed to be drawing us back onto. The the point just being that you know Tipsy Coachman, while while it 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 sounds interesting and novel, it really is just sort of a common sense application of how appellate courts work, right? And 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 the burden shifting, uh, or you know the burden being on appellants to show error. And there being much more latitude for the appellees, and, and you know, it makes sense. Why why would an appellate court uh, reverse a judgment just to send it back to the tell the trial judge? Well, you have to explain this differently, right? The result's right. okay, but you have to explain it differently. That that doesn't make sense. That would be a waste of, of time and judicial resources. So, I think in that sense, you know, Tipsy Coachman um, makes a, a lot of sense from a judicial economy perspective. Absolutely, and it's always going to be a fantastic tool for for Applees, no matter what argument you face, convoluted argument as it may be, as I was just talking about, you may face from the other side. You can always cite to Tipsy Coachman if you have something in the record to support you. You just have to figure out, is it the argument that supports me or the facts that support me, and can I still use this doctrine on that basis? Well, so that's an important caveat, I think, that we need to talk about, because Tipsy Coachman isn't a, a totally open door for Applees um, to make an argument that the trial court was right, but for the wrong reasons. You have to be able to either make that argument solely as a matter of law, mm-hmm. or if it involves facts, you have to show that the facts are you know found in and supported by the record. So it's 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 not just a it's not the wild west. Uh, you have to be able to, and I think that the appellate courts are real serious about this. Um, you need to be able to support that defense in the facts in the record. Right, and I think it can't just be that there are facts in the record to support you. It, it's that the argument I think was raised sufficiently, or the facts were addressed sufficiently that they've. They covered that basis from from both parties. You know what I mean? That it was at issue enough that it was fully fleshed out and not something where there just happens to be a fact that supports the trial court's ruling, but had the other side known this was going to be the argument on appeal or what would support the judgment ultimately, they wouldn't have had anything else to bring in um, or wouldn't have had another argument to raise. Sort of a fundamental fairness. Kind type. of. That's, that's the way I look at it anyways. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how correct or supportable that is, but it seems to me that that's the way many people um, in the judiciary kind of look at it is they'll apply the tipsy coachman as long as it's something that was fully fleshed out in the trial court and nobody would have been caught off guard had this new thing, um, this new argument or new basis for affirming come up. Looks like we've got air traffic overhead. That's perfect. Uh, perfect time to take a drink, right? That's right. Well, yeah, and what you're saying is a perfect segue into talking. Another thing I wanted to mention was tipsy coachman becomes a little bit more tricky in the summary judgment concept, right? Because, um, you know, summary judgments are can be tricky to defend on appeal anyway, but... Um, you have to be careful as an appellee in arguing tipsy coachman because, like you were saying, if it's something that was not didn't wasn't really fully explored uh, as a summary judgment basis in the lower court, it's that is probably not going to work for you in the appellate court. That's true. And then, 
even sometimes when you think it has been uh, explored in the trial court, there have been uh, opinions I've seen where if the trial court grants summary judgment on a single basis for summary judgment and then never gets to the other ones, even if they may have been fully argued by both sides but just never rules on them, uh, some appellate courts have been hesitant to consider anything related to those because there wasn't a trial court ruling on it. Um, even though that's something that I would, uh, I would think that may be considered fully developed in the record because everybody had a chance to flesh everything out. Just because the trial court didn't rely on it meant the uh, appellate court wouldn't consider it. Mm-hmm. Um, alternatively, I think appellate courts might consider them. Uh, in other cases, I haven't seen an opinion necessarily on it, but. You know, if if there's, it might be the basis for a PCA that we don't know about out there. So right, well, that's right. There's probably a lot of tipsy coachman might be a basis for a lot of PCAs, and we just don't we don't know the extent of that because exactly. we don't have an opinion. Exactly. Now, since tipsy coachman is purely an appellee's argument, um, as a matter of strategy, when you are an appellant uh, and doing your initial brief. Do you ever anticipate those arguments in the initial brief and to try and take the sting out of them, or do you wait and make sure that <laughs> the uh, appellee is actually going to make those arguments and, and wait for the reply brief? I think if it's something that I have identified quickly or obviously as in a tipsy coachman argument, I feel like it's my burden to um, demonstrate that it was not a basis for is not a basis for affirmance. I think I have to as the appellant address it because WQBA doesn't really mince words. It says if there's anything in the trial court to support uh, to support the ruling, then the appellate court has to affirm. Uh, it doesn't, I think, even necessarily say the appellee has to raise it. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a question out there, and you can argue that the appellee, appellee does or does not have to raise a tipsy coachman argument, but as the appellant, I'm going to make sure with that language out there that I have crossed all my T's and dotted all my I's and covered anything remotely obvious that might be uh, something that will be considered as a basis for affirmance. Yeah, I think that makes sense because, you know, first of all, it it does, like I alluded to, it it sort of takes the sting out of it, I think, if you acknowledge it first. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, we know that we can be very pressed for space in a reply brief. So if you hope for the best... Uh, first of all, hoping that your opponent isn't going to make a good argument is usually never a good strategy. <laughs> but, you know, and, and then when they make it, um, now space can be at a premium in the reply brief. So I, I think that probably makes sense to to try and address it up front, even as an appellant. Yeah, and, and I agree with your point on taking the sting out of it. It's, it's not something that necessarily has to be addressed in depth. Um, but to save space and show that you're conscious of it, and that you're not hiding anything from the court. If you can get it into your initial brief, even in a, you know, a, a pretty basic way, and just say this isn't an issue because, in a couple sentences, then you then you have kind of taken that sting out of it, like you said. So it's a good point. Now, just because Tipsy Coachman is sort of an open door for appellees to to raise some new arguments, it doesn't mean you can wait until oral argument, right? You can't sandbag on this until OA and then bring up a new ground. There are lots of opinions on that. Um, that said, once again, you know, you're not supposed to bring up anything new at oral argument, but that WQBA language says anything in the record. So 
the court could conceivably go behind closed doors and whether you brought it up at oral argument or not as as appellee for the first time they could consider it as something in the record that maybe they'd seen already on their own um and figured no this case needs to be affirmed regardless so what to do about oral oral argument i'm not sure um take your chances i guess if you have a really good tipsy coachman argument you want to make sure the court's seen it um you 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 risk (laughs) you risk being shot down pretty hard yeah yeah and it's you know it's probably not the most professional approach but you know i have i have seen instances and heard people talk of things where where because of the interaction at oral argument uh, because of some of the questioning of the judges, sort of an, a new, a new tipsy coachman-like argument is suggested by the court on their own, or comes to you uh, at oral argument because of some revelation. Um, so I, I can see instances where it could come up for the first time in oral argument, and it, you know it's not necessarily anything you planned or could avoid. But right. uh, I guess if if it's if it's an argument that helps you as the appellee. Um, you should bring it up just just cautiously right. and, and deferentially and, and absolutely and perhaps maybe even say i know this isn't in the brief <laughs> um and i recognize that but it seems that the court and maybe you could place the uh <laughs> place the fault that it's coming up at oral argument on the court maybe if they've asked a question that's a, that uh uh, is tangential to whatever you want to bring up that's new and say, well, it seems the court is asking about this. Um, it wasn't addressed in the brief, but I do agree with the court that this would be a basis for affirmance. Yeah, that's Something true. like that. I, I, I don't know. Um, that'd be a seat of the pants call at oral argument. So, At least there's an opportunity of getting away with it, which as an appellant, you're never going to get away with that. But right. as an appellee, then at, at least I guess there is a shot. And again, another one of the joys of being an appellee. <laughs> I find that the, the almost by definition, I guess that the tipsy coachman arguments are usually a secondary argument, right? I mean, by by definition, you you it's an argument in the alternative uh, because you want to be able to argue unless unless there's a reason um, that you can't ethically or professionally under Boca Boca Burger and and those cases, you, you always want to try and argue whatever theory that the court actually ruled upon and a lot of times the tipsy coachman argument winds up being sort of in in the alternative in case you don't buy that uh, we have this this extra argument i think uh don't you generally see it that way yeah i I agree with that um i still remember one of the one of the first lessons uh, i learned when leaving the court and going into private practice um and, and it stuck with me all these years from from tony russo at butler uh, another a good friend and another board certified appellate attorney in Florida. Um, he always said, "Support the trial court's judgment." Step number one in any any bit of brief writing is, is support the trial court. And what I suppose that really means is ride the coattails of the experience and knowledge and deference that the trial court has. The trial court judge has. They trial court judges know so much and have so much experience, and frankly, for most people, are they, they have they, they their opinions have more weight with an appellate court than than mine, um, and, and probably most other practitioners. And um, if you can say the trial court is right, then you want to do that, uh, and, and then use the, the tipsy coachman arguments as secondary. The trial court. Even if the trial court didn't get that reasoning right, which we think they did, 
here are a bunch of other reasons that the result is the right is the right result. Uh, you can, it's hard to go wrong supporting the trial judge. Now, again, I sort of alluded to this. There can be instances where you find that if the if the trial judge's judgment was really unsupportable for some reason because they were whatever completely wrong about the law, completely wrong about the facts. Florida appellate courts have said that that we can't we can't blindly support the trial court, right? Right. We have to make some independent evaluation. But let's face it, that's that's a pretty rare circumstance. I, I, I I've seen it happen. Have you? You've had. I'm sure you've had cases. I, I have, but yeah. it, it's not often. It's not often. It, I mean, you have to have a, a judgment that's that's really like the, the reason he's just completely unsupportable to to just bail out of what the trial court ruled right away. Um, I think the decision you're talking about, I want to say that's the Boca Burger decision. Boca Burger, yeah. Um, that talks about the sanctions on uh, Appellee's, Appellee's attorneys um, who just say the trial judge was right and that's it, even when the trial judge was clearly wrong and, and sanctions could be imposed. But in most instances, if that was true, right, if, if we decided that the trial judge was wrong, we made that, we generally confess error unless we had a great tipsy coachman great argument. Tipsy coachman argument. <laughs> and and often there is a great tipsy coachman argument. There's almost always yeah. almost always uh, a tipsy coachman argument that can be made um, validly and honorably. So let's talk about that. How often as an appellee do you think that you raise a tipsy coachman argument in your briefs? I'm struggling to think of a time that I wouldn't. Mhm. I mean really I I'm trying to think through all the records and all the briefs I've ever done, it would be a rare situation in which I didn't find some other alternative basis for the trial court's ruling. I think maybe maybe with an appeal from a dismissal or something where it's early on or an extremely discreet issue with, with limited um, with a limited record and no facts, maybe there wouldn't be anything else to argue. But the longer a case goes on or the more in-depth the... Um, in-depth the record is or in-depth the arguments are below, the more likely there is to be something else you can argue as an alternative basis. I don't know. Can you think of a time you haven't raised a tipsy coachman argument? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, I I do think commonly that I do, but sometimes, you know, if the the argument for affirmance is just so clear, um, particularly, you know, if you have like a... For some reason, I wind up with a lot of pro se, uh, <laughs> you know, in, individuals at different times. So, I mean, I, I can't say across the board, but I would say commonly, um, I certainly always look for it and always evaluate it and often raise it and occasionally, you know, lose on that <laughs> on that basis too. I just had a I had an opinion recently where I represent the appellee. I made a. Uh, an argument and a tipsy coachman argument, and the court specifically said in their opinion that the tipsy coachman argument in their opinion wasn't supported by the record. So, you know, uh, <sighs> it was it was worth making. I'm not sure I agree, <laughs> but you know, it is what it is. Uh, it sounds like you raise a good point with the with the um, pro se appeals that are just you know statistically more likely to have. Um, frivolous or completely unsupported arguments, and and if you can just knock it out of the park in a couple pages and save the court some reading time, there there's um there's a lot of value to that brevity where they just they could just say, yep, you're you're right, he's wrong, we don't need to read anymore, we're happy with that, and affirm. Yeah, I think if you're super confident in your argument, 
you could forego a tipsy coachman argument just to so that you're not look you don't look like you're throwing stuff against the wall or you're not diluting your argument you're 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 throwing all your eggs in one basket because you're sure right. and you better be really sure mm-hmm. and it's a strategy call that as experienced appellate practitioners we have to make but i think that that can be a valid decision sometimes that yeah i have a i have a tipsy coachman argument but i really like I really like my primary argument, and I don't want to even suggest that that's not right. That's a good point, and, and I think in briefing, that's that's a that's a good point. On oral argument, even better. Um, I know I've I've done that on oral argument where I might have a, a bunch of tipsy coach from bases or or other things I can argue as appellee, but you see what the appellant does and what the court does as far as their questions to the appellant. You get a feel for where the case is going. And maybe your response is the the appellee is a couple minutes because you're so confident in what the court has said and you know the the few bullet points you need to get out and and just not even bother talking about the tipsy coachman arguments because you know you don't need to. You can just set those extra things aside yeah. and sit down. Sometimes the smartest things we do at oral argument as appellees is sit down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm curious about this. We didn't talk about this in advance of the podcast. Um, when you are making this type of argument, um, do you use the term? Do you call it a tipsy coachman argument? Do you use those words to, to signal in the court? Or do you make the argument and, and cite to the, uh, the case and, and move on? Or do you actually use the words? I don't know if I've ever, I don't know if I've ever made that conscious decision one way or the other. I think I have probably just cited or quoted the language from WQBA or, or that other or any other strong case from the district in which I'm appearing, and they don't typically use the term tipsy coachman or or that that's not the sentence I'm citing anyways. I'm usually just citing the the right for the wrong reasons language or the anything in the record um, can support the ruling uh, sentence wherever that comes from, and I run with that. So I don't think I do use the term tipsy coachman that frequently. How about you? Yeah, I, I don't either. Um, I think that I use tipsy coachman more often as a shorthand with other appellate lawyers um, to to discuss, you know, to identify the concept. Um, or sometimes it'll come up at oral argument, but generally I don't use that term in the brief because I feel like if I use it. Then I feel, even though I know the appellate judges know exactly what I'm talking about, (laughs) but still I have this compulsion to show my work. So if I'm going to call it Tipsy Coachman, I have to explain why it's called Tipsy Coachman or drop a footnote, which the second DCA doesn't like. No, and you don't want to do any of that anyways. (laughs) So a lot of times I I don't use the term um, just because... uh, it's not an official term, right? It's kind of a it's kind of a nickname, and while it's a blessed nickname by by various Florida courts, mm-hmm. um, it's it's sort of a shorthand that I, I don't need no needs to be in the brief. No, I agree with that, and, and like you said, the only the fifty CA used it at first, and right, I, I at least in in as far as my memory of this goes, it seems to only come up in detail when they're when the court is having a is struggling a little bit with it. Um, whether or not it ends up in an affirmance or reversal, it's an opinion where it's um, it's not at all certain. And I don't necessarily want to rely on those kinds of opinions and that kind of language when I'm saying this is I'm the appellee. This is this is well, 
dead to rights kind of argument and um, you just need to affirm it because the record supports it in 10 different ways. I'm going to rely on the cases that just talk about that. Yeah. It's one of those concepts like uh, the burden on a burden on a summary judgment. You don't you don't have to explain it in detail to the appellate court every time you use it. They they are they are all eminently uh, familiar. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think that leads us to one of the most important questions of the podcast, Jared, which is um, it's it's sort of begging to be asked: uh, Is Tipsy Coachman even the best name for this doctrine? I mean. Are we glorifying irresponsible behavior like this? I, well, let me take another sip of my beer and, and think about that for a moment. <laughs> I mean, I don't think DUI was a huge problem in the 1700s. Um, I'm guessing that horses may have a sense of self-preservation and may be smart enough <laughs> to avoid danger even when some drunken idiot is on the reins and telling them where to go. And, you know, a 15-mile-an-hour collision of uh, a horse-drawn carriage is not like uh, a 70-mile-an-hour collision of a BMW, but... But DUI and impaired driving is an issue now, so do you think we're being insensitive by calling a tipsy coachman? That is a deep question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, at least we're not calling it the, the drunken BMW driver, as you're suggesting here, right? I mean, well, that, yeah, that or, or drunken problem. Uber driver, you know, right? <laughs> I mean, it, the other thing is it is it is dated, right? I Part of the reason why... Uh, my initial confusion over what does tipsy coachman mean is because coachman is coachman is an antiquated term. Mm-hmm. Tipsy is kind of an antiquated term. I mean, my grandmother says that, but <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't think my, my kids do. So, you know, but I guess drunken Uber driver just doesn't really convey the message either. So, no, that would convey the wrong message. Um, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Is that isn't it kind of uh, irreverent to the trial court saying that they've They've drunkenly fallen asleep at the wheel and yet managed to come up with the right results. So good job. That's right. You um, are sort of comparing the trial judge to a, a, a you know a, a drunken driver who just happens to find their way home despite the fact that they're drunk. <laughs> I, I think. I think for me, it's. I don't know. I think this is a a warm, fuzzy, harmless. Um, little nuance of, of Florida law and, and given that it's tipsy coachman and not you know drunken car driver and, and given that it comes from something before cars were even invented um, and there probably weren't any uh, DUI fatalities back in the 1700s I feel like it's it's okay the archaic nature takes the sting off of it yeah, right <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, if this was something that came up like the for the first time in the in the 40s or 50s then yeah, then, then I think no, that that doesn't work anymore. But because this is so old and and created during a time when you really, I mean, the, I I would assume the likelihood of death from somebody falling asleep at the at the uh, rings literally rings of a horse drawn carriage um, were probably slim to none. So yeah, maybe we're okay. Well, and you know the Florida courts do use the term, and they keep using it, right? Uh, right. So I guess we have to decide that it's it's not that offensive, and we're kind of uh, stuck with it. But well, we don't have to. We 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 can decide to uh, not take a stand on it. So when when this uh, podcast is pulled out of the archives thirty or forty years from now, and we've been proven horribly wrong. <laughs> we don't go down as a as a negative footnote in history. <laughs> I guess the issue with it is it's it's just not uh, very intuitive, right? If we called it the right for the wrong reasons rule, um, right. that's a little bit more explanatory for for people who are 
not a pellet specialist and uh, not as familiar with the concept. So I, I guess as long as we're talking in our tight little circles about tipsy coachmen, um, everybody knows what we're talking about right. and, and no harm, no foul. I mean, and no, nor is it very formal. And I think that's one of the reasons I, I kind of like it. It's very Florida. It is. It's very Florida. You're, you're not going to find the tipsy coachman, I don't think, in in, in New York or Boston or, or any of the original um, New England colonies or anything like that. This, this is a Georgia-Florida kind of thing. And I don't know. I, I kind of like it. I think it sets us apart a little bit. And this is... I don't necessarily want to say this is who we are, but <laughs> the but, tipsy coachman is definitely a Florida man in spirit, if not in geography. <laughs> I, I guess I guess that's what I'm getting at. I guess that's where I'm going with it. <laughs> well, Jared, this has been great. Um, I think we need to finish the podcast so that we can finish the beer and uh, get on to more important things. It sounds like a plan. Hey, thanks as always for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Very glad to be here, Dwayne. Thanks again. thanks to Jared Krukar for helping me figure all this out. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is always in the show notes. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is also in the show notes. Take a moment, add it to your contacts now, so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. This will be the last episode of 2020. It's surely been an odd year. Now, a lot of the things we thought would be brief changes in our life seem like they may be part of the new normal. 2021 won't likely be a return to all the old ways of working, but we'll adapt and overcome, and we'll find ways to best represent our clients and to keep the wheels of justice turning. The next episode will be out next year, in two weeks. I hope that you will continue to download and listen.